and welcome to Always Take Notes, a podcast by, for and about writers and writing. My name is Cassia Sinclair and I'm the author of The Secret Lives of Colour that was published by John Murray late last year and I'm also a design journalist. Hello, uh, my name is Simon Aikham. I'm writing a book on the recent evolution of the British Army for William Heinemann and likewise I'm also a journalist. Our guest for the first podcast episode is Jonathan Beckman. Now, Jonathan's a man who's achieved a certain level of notoriety in London publishing circles for the plunging depths of his V-neck t-shirts, but he's also the deputy editor of 1843, the lifestyle and culture magazine from The Economist. Before that, he worked at Literary Review, where he ran the Bad Sex Awards. That was actually where I first met him. I was an intern there and spent an instructive month typing up passages of various books to be considered for the Bad Sex Awards. When we talked to him, we spoke about his own book, How to Ruin a Queen, about Marie Antoinette and a stolen diamond necklace. He then talked us through the process of commissioning articles for 1843 and talked about one piece in particular about Azerbaijan. So, Jonathan, can you tell us a bit about you know, your background and your entry into, into journalism and what you do? Um, yeah, I, I started off a long time ago now... Uh, on the books desk of the Observer, um, back when a books desk was actually a desk and it had like an editor, a deputy editor, <laughs> an administrator. Um, when was this? <laughs> in the mystical age before the crash, uh, they paid people, um, um, and so I, I was I was I was working in a bookshop, and the daughter of one of my colleagues reviewed the new fiction and said, "Oh, you should go and intern there for a summer," which I did, uh, and. Uh, the book's desk on a Sunday paper is, I think, probably about the slowest part <laughs> of a paper uh, that you can get. Like, unless Philip Roth dies on a Friday night, there's almost <laughs> never any urgency to what you're doing. Uh, and so you spend a lot of time kind of sifting through books because that's more or less all, all there is to do. Um, and so you go, you know, I sifted through books, and I go, then I started to kind of contribute. Uh, Had you wanted to be a journalist? I don't, I don't think so. I want to do something with books, definitely. I was definitely more kind of, uh, you know, I got into the idea, once I started you know, reviewing a few times, I was like, this is great. Like, someone's paying me to kind of read a book and then deliver my opinion on it. Little did I realise that's basically no way to make a living at the time. But, <laughs> but it, was, it was fun. And then I left university and I thought, oh, I might as well carry on this journalism stuff for a bit. Did an internship at, I think, what was a particularly grim moment in the New Statesman's history where... <laughs> when no one in the office spoke to uh, anyone at all. And that kind of put me off <laughs> doing serious, journal proper journalism for a bit. And then I, I, I was lucky enough uh, to do, get work experience and get a job at a literary review magazine, which is a tiny uh, uh, but very congenial uh, magazine based in, in Soho. And it's kind of a Dickensian setup in an 18th century building with no central heating a hole in the floor, kind of Miss Havisham curtains, like an armchair that's basically falling to pieces, piles of books everywhere. It's a film set. And it was, it was utterly uh, idyllic for a while. You sit around, you look at books, you think of interesting people to send it to, uh, you know, and you edit, you edit their copy. And you learn a lot, I learned a lot doing that about, about how to turn, turn copy around. And, and you basically learn a, you learn a little bit about a lot of all sorts of subjects. So that's how, that's how I started. And it was so, so enjoyable. I stayed there for seven years. Mm. And what were your different positions or jobs during that? I started that off as uh, an editorial assistant uh, on, on a princely sum of £600 a month, 
uh, which is, even then wasn't very much. Uh, and then I was assistant editor, then I was a senior editor. Um, and I, 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 I was also sort of about it was I wrote a book at um, the same time. Yeah. And obviously, if you work for a books magazine, your colleagues are reasonably sympathetic to the idea of, of you, you writing a book and you know, shortening your hours. So I, was, I went down, I started off on four days a week, and I went down to three and finally two days a week just so I could get this book. Had away. that come out of something that you were, you know, looking into while you were at university, or was this a completely new idea? No, I mean, it was a kind of. I like the idea of of, of of having written a book, but obviously, you've got to go through the process of writing one before before then. So I was kind of the <laughs> 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 long process of writing one before. I was scouting around for idea, and I read uh, Simon Sharma's book on the French Revolution. Um, which had a kind of seven-page section, which was about an what seemed to me an extraordinary episode uh, just before the French Revolution, um, when a uh, about an enormous scandal when a woman forged letters from Marie Antoinette uh, to convince a randy but gullible cardinal uh, to help her get hold of one of the most expensive pieces of jewelry in Europe, and kind of mayhem ensued that went down to the revolution, and no one had written about this for you know hundreds of hundred years, as far as I could tell. So I thought, I'll do that. I mean. <laughs> Having only GCSE French and no experience <laughs> of writing a book. <laughs> well, did you, did you have any any concern having written a lot of criticism of sort of moving onto the other side, like getting onto the pitch? Um, yeah. On the other hand, if you if you if you look at a lot of books, you do real, realize there are a hell of a lot of bad books out there <laughs> that get published. Um, but yeah, I, I think I don't know. I I think. I'm sure it's not right in this room, but I think the, the one thing you learn is if when you're when you're edit and uh, write is that is there are a lot of people who who make a living from writing who simply cannot write, I mean simply cannot construct a sentence um, uh, to make it you know, to make it coherent. I mean not even stylish, just go you know, basically literate, and somehow <laughs> they <laughs> often make quite successful careers, uh, which to me is. <laughs> Consistently extraordinary. Um, so, so yeah. Part of me was like, yeah. I think you. I, part, I mean, it's totally ignorant of 18th century France. So, <laughs> you know, I was kind of anticipating the you know the TLS review that meticulously picked apart <laughs> everything I didn't know and kind of misconstrued, which and unfortunately didn't happen because I didn't review it. Um, <laughs> is that better uh, or worse? Yeah. So I. You know, so so you know, that. So no, it is. I think you have to. You have to. Um, uh, um, yeah, you, you you always taking a risk. But I think if you're doing any kind of journalism, any kind of popular writing, you're always taking a risk. If you want, if you don't, you want to master a, you know, a very small field of knowledge, then you should become an academic, and there's nothing you know dishonourable about that. But but if you, you know, if you're doing something you know, something like this, and you want to be continually interested in what you're doing, then you're always going to be writing about things that you. And what you was don't know. the the time cycle for your book from sort of conception of the idea to publication? Uh, so I had a kind of very lethargic year of telling myself I was writing a proposal for a book, which uh, um, I wasn't really. Um, I was just taking a hell of a lot of notes on one book. Um, and then uh, I met an agent who actually seemed to be intrigued by the idea, so kind of speeded up rapidly. Um, and I got a deal shortly afterwards. Um, <coughs> unfortunately, the, the, I, I was given three years to write this book, 
Uh, my deadline coincided uh, with the, the Summer Olympics in 2012. And I don't know if you know, there was a big clock in Trafalgar Square that for three years count <laughs> always counted down uh, <laughs> to, the, to the Olympics and also my deadline, which... Uh, was that on your way into work? Well, yeah, which whizzed, which whizzed, uh, whizzed past. So, it, it, I mean, they, they said, how long do you want to, you know, want to write a book. Yeah. I've, I've literally no idea how long it takes to write a book while maintaining a job. Um, uh, and so, if, yeah, from, from inception to publication, it was probably six years in total. Four of okay. them. Four. I think it's really interesting that you say that there's a real gap in knowledge about just how long. You're sort of like, well, I don't know. I, I guess I'll write about this many words per day. Did you have sort of a set, or did you sort of drastically speed up towards uh, I the mean, end? I mean, I, I, I went wildly wrong about how mm. to write a book. I'm, I think I was, I don't know, well, you've just written a book, so you, mm. you put, I think you just learn how not to write a book when you write your first book, which is mostly by taking hundreds of thousands of words of notes that you have no you know, way of keeping under control mm. and, you know, trying to write, you know, consecutively. And was it, was it fun or was it utterly miserable? <laughs> Sometimes it was fun. Uh, uh, it was it was utterly miserable at various points in it. One particular one was when I taken three months off work to go to to Paris to do archival research and had gone to the Archive Nationale and ordered up my first box of documents. I'm not, I, I've not, I, I'm not a kind of trained historian any anyway. I've never done any paleography or anything like that. And this box comes and I take it out and. I just I just look at kind of the first batch of documents and it is it's just totally impenetrable. Not the language, just the the, the writing. And it looks you know, like I don't know when you're six years old and you try to do joined up handwriting, but you basically do a series of loops on the page. Uh, so that's more or less what it looked like. And the C's look like the M's look like the N's. Look like, and I was just you know I was in despair and you know sort of kind of crying down the phone to my dad about how this was going to be the most expensive waste of time of my life and you know, nothing would come out of it and I'd still have a book contract and I won't be able to write it. Um, and then you kind of slowly... How did you negotiate that? Uh, well, firstly, the great thing you can do is this. You can take photographs in archives, um, which means you don't have to spend all your, you know, all your time in an archive transcribing. And the good thing about that is also you can take it home and deal with it at your leisure. But... Um, but yeah, and you can blow it up on the screen as well, mm. so it makes stuff that is particularly legible. Um, so I, you know, I did a lot of that, I and mean, I did some. But also, I, as I spoke to friends of mine who are expert in you know, dealing with ancient documents, that you, your, eye, your eye does get in reasonably quickly. Um, uh, even though you think you are, it won't, and that you'll never be able to read any of this stuff. Um, yeah, you slowly, you slowly, you slowly get to read it. So by the end, I mean, one of the, you know, someone had written a, series of letters to someone in prison with invisible ink, which basically was, these days it now looks like someone's kind of pissed on the page. It's like slightly fainter uh, <laughs> stain. But yeah, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't make out all of that stuff. But yeah, you, you certainly make out words and bits and pieces and some Excellent of it enough. kind of ended up in the book. So. We, I don't think we've actually mentioned the title of the book, an oversight, sorry, How to Ruin a Queen, um, when it was published in 2014 published in the in 2014, UK? yeah. And in the US? In the US, also, also in 2014, I think. And how did you, the kind of emotional reality of when it's published, did it feel like the culmination of six years' work, or did you have this very flat feeling? That oh, yeah, people... I enormous, got enormously depressed for about two months afterwards. <laughs> uh, 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 yeah, no, it was good. It was nice. People say nice things about you. But what you realise is you publish a book, and people are nice about it. So, oh, hopefully they're nice about it. In the, I, mean, I, might, I, I mean, I was very lucky that people were nice about it, and they wrote about it. They could have kind of pissed all over it, and it would have probably been a worse experience. But um, they're nice about it. Um, and then... You kind of disappear 
you've written a book unless you know you win some prize or you know you, you sell you one of those prize, books that takes yeah. off yeah, but a prize that kind of brings you to kind of actually attention of readers, you right. know, which there are not very many uh, about. Or you know, or you, or you, you know, you're lucky and you, you, know, you write the hair with your eyes and sell a billion copies, then then you, you realise that your book is kind of getting lost quite, 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 uh, quite, quite quickly. Before we move on to to what you're doing now, you, it obviously hasn't put you off. Beginning to think about a second book, or will you describe it as? Well, a... it's been two years. I'm started writing another book. <laughs> you haven't yeah. rushed into it. <laughs> yeah, I think. Well, I think the first thing I think once you've written a book is 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 great. Oh yeah, no, I would quite like to do another book, but it, this time it would be really nice if someone gave me some money for it. Um, uh, you know, was that one one thing we wanted with with this event, this podcast, was to kind of delve into some of the muckier, you know, financials oh, and stuff yeah. without yeah, yeah, specifics no, necessarily. But, mm. but did you did you get? A, a kind of substantial advance for this, or I got. I think what was the reason? I got seventeen and a half thousand pounds, which okay. I think was for. Uh, uh, I signed my book what a year, two years after the f- financial crisis. Yeah. Where basically, the bot- I mean, the bottom went out with everything. I mean, people were paying stupid sums of money that they were never going to make back for books before that. Yeah. But then the bottom really fell out, and 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 in a way, being a first-time writer was much better than being a mid-lister with a family and a mortgage who were mm. used to getting £60,000 for a book every two years yeah. and then suddenly was told by their publisher they were going to get, you know, 5000 Yeah. So at least at least um, my expectations, mm. you know, I could adjust my life <laughs> according, according to what to what I, uh, what I was going to... But I think, I think, um, I think you know, it, was a, it was a very reasonable sum of money to, um, to give someone who had absolutely no track record yeah. Or indeed, could speak the language in which the and just for, for perhaps the people who sources and he was not familiar as well. Book advances you don't get it all up front. No, no, no. So well. they, they gave me a bit more. They gave me ten thousand pounds up front, but mm-hmm. ten thousand pounds over even over three years, which was supposed to be. Yeah. Once you've given some money to your agent, agent and some more money to the tax man. Yeah, is, I think it surprised uh, me how ignorant I was with the advance. I was like, the advance, it 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 comes in advance. <laughs> it, it doesn't. No, it really doesn't. Uh, but then you, once you've written the book and the paperback comes out, you go, oh, some of those check just appears miraculously with you not having done work for a year. Can we talk a bit about your current role at 1843, how yeah. that came about and what, what your responsibilities are there? Uh, how that came about? Um, well, I, applied, I applied, for a, applied for a job there um, and I got it, which, which is rare for me. Um, uh, so yeah, I mean, I've been in Literary Review for seven years, and which is a fantastic place to work. And but is you know, write, review, you know, editing book reviews gets kind of less satisfying after a while. So mm. um, I was looking for something different. Um, and the Economist uh, was relaunching the magazine that used to be called Intelligent Life uh, as 1843 um, with a kind of different remit, uh, which is going to be more current and more global and have a much larger re- readership so it's effectively a supplement i'm not I, for some reason i'm not supposed to call it a supplement because the commercial people don't like me calling it but i don't understand i can't really think but of a better way to describe the it. it's a supplement for economists it goes to every combined print digital subscriber yeah right. yeah so so it, yeah, it goes out six times a year to uh, and it's available on newsstands and to subscribe to separately and how big is the subscriber base um, I don't know, I think we're about, we're about, about 500,000 people, I think, mm. uh, globally. So it's, it's a very global magazine. Uh, only 15% of our readers are in the UK, 45% are in the States, the rest are 
around the world. You know, the and what was the, the, the change of tone from sort of the old style to the new style? What did you want? What was the kind of what, what kind of voice did you want the new magazine to have? And, and how is that different from what the Economist culture department does? Um, I think I, 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 I wasn't really privy to these conversations because I joined somewhat down the line. I think that it was felt that Intelligent Life had a separate base of smaller base of subscribers, and that the, the way it went about things was kind of a little insular and a little nostalgic uh, for something that would work for economist readers around the world. They wanted to rearrange the balance to because it was not it, there was no cover price really to it now, so it needs to attract luxury advertising, mm. so we've got a style section, and there's, there's more kind of lifestyle stuff in it. Mm -hmm. But it is a, is a bit of a hybrid, so it's got all of that stuff, and it. it has this well of kind of solid features in the, in, yeah. in, in the middle of it. So it does, it's, you know, it's doing, it does a bit of culture stuff, but it's not even criticism, which you know, the economist culture mm -hmm. bit does, but it's doing you know, food and drink, fashion, design, all of these things that and, and people all think the economist doesn't do, but actually we're, we're doing it. And on the, the, big, the big feature well in the middle, how does commissioning that kind of stuff, again, similar to Cassio, fit compared to, say, the Christmas stories The Economist does? Which well, I think that the Christmas edition of The Economist was one of the things that they wanted this to be. I mean, like, but kind of, you know, it, it looks physically different, yeah. but they wanted to have, they wanted to have those um, uh, kind of stories in there. They wanted to give economist journalists the opportunity to write Right at length. So I think yeah, it's, it's fundamentally different. You know, a magazine is fundamentally different from The Economist, even though it's of, of a kind of, you know, same say. But The Economist is a newspaper and sees itself as a newspaper. And the role of a newspaper is to deliver news as clearly and succinctly and efficiently, most importantly, as possible. Mm -hmm. And the role of a magazine is to do something different, which is give you a story that you could luxuriate in and read over kind of mm -hmm. time and take, take, take pleasure in it. I mean, people take pleasure in The Economist, but they don't necessarily have to take pleasure in The Economist to get something out of it. I think if you, wouldn't, if you weren't to take pleasure in 1843, then there wouldn't, there, be, there wouldn't be much point in reading it. Was there like a rival in mind? Was there a rival in mind? I don't think, I don't think so. There's no one... I mean, Intelligent Life was the closest magazine yeah. that there was to this. There's no one in this country that has... Does a magazine like this with uh, high production standards um, and the level of serious seriousness that I think the magazine, mm -hmm. you know, this um, uh, this this has? I don't. You know, I think I don't. Is I mean, I, it's a bit like you know, it's a bit like, you know, it's a bit like kind of a hybrid between the New York Times magazine and Tea, possibly. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's got it's got elements of lifestyle that you don't often find in supplements or some supplements. Mm -hmm. We've been leafing through some of the features that we particularly liked, and, and one of the ones that we both noticed, the one on Azerbaijan, which is a recent one, which I think you had a hand in sort of seeing, seeing through. Yeah. Can you tell us a bit about it? Uh, so I came with this idea because I kind of noticed increasingly bizarre things that the Azerbaijan government appeared to be doing to uh, launder its reputation internationally. And lots of... Can you give some examples? For yeah, lo well, lots, of, lots, of, lots of kind of nefarious regimes have have public affairs to, you know, people who, um, who uh, kind of give, you know, um, you know, lobby governments. But I mean, Azerbaijan, they, 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 I mean, they sponsor Atletico Madrid Football Club. They have a magazine published uh, by Condé Nast called Baku that is edited by the leader's daughter. I think they... Um... Maybe we should get her on the podcast. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> should we just tell you what a wonderful country Azerbaijan is? Uh, they, they sponsor... They, they set up a... So an Azerbaijani oligarch set up a prize in Sweden 
uh, which she then awarded to the Azerbaijani's pre president's wife. The president's wife um, so that she, they could say basically internally that he'd, she'd won the Swedish Peace Prize and everyone would think she'd got the Nobel Prize. Um, so, I mean, so, so they seem to go above and beyond what was required. And they've, they've, they've hosted these enormously expensive international sporting competitions. They had the European mm -hmm. Games, uh, which, which basically, I think the only reason anyone in this country certainly found out about was because the Guardian were denied press accreditation because they were going to say, you know, report on some fairly nasty things that were going, going on there. They've, they've just hosted um, the European Grand Prix. And one of the things that, uh, which, is a, which is a kind of re revolving Grand Prix that goes from country to country, I think, every year. And one of the, the things that, um, uh, that came out in the piece was that, was that you know, this, this, I mean, this is what governments like like that, do they? They give people like Formula One enormous amounts of money so that they will stage it there. And and so, but it's quite an interesting time at the moment because all of this money is built on you know, the rise from oil revenues. I think eighty percent of Azeri um, money comes from comes mm. from oil, and the price of that is is crashing completely. So, and could you talk for maybe a lot of people here are interested in writing that kind of long form stuff? Just yeah. How does the process work? From you know, you've got an idea, choosing the writer, and how you know how long is the time frame? you guys doing it, turning around a piece like that? So, I mean, it, 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 certainly, it certainly depends. One of the things we can't do on a magazine like where we come out every two months is basically be timely, which is, is, is liberating in a certain respect. So we didn't have to kind of sit around racking our brains how we're we going to do a Trump piece that was different from everyone else's Trump piece because we just didn't do one. Um, because you know, there's no, you know, it, was, it was impossible to do one because we never knew what was going. You know, but when we commissioned it, we never knew where, where anything would be at. You know, two months down the line, and then there's I mean, there's an enormous year. You know, there's a kind of almost a month lag between when we go to close the magazine and it actually comes out. So, so that is that is liberating. I mean, that piece from I took a took I would say took a uh, four months, maybe five months, something like that, and it kind of changed a bit in the middle. So. We found out about the Grand Prix, and then we were possibly going to do a piece just about the the Grand Prix. Um, and it was a question of whether, you know, uh, Matthew, who wrote the piece, is our investigations correspondent, is, we, uh, was able to go to Azerbaijan because, I mean, the FT, for example, had been mm. denied uh, accreditation there. And so he went there and he kind of said, I'm really interested in Formula One. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> they seemed to buy it. Um, uh, and, then, and then he did a whole amount of research about what's What's going on, and you know, and you know, a piece like that, you know, it takes time to find people who are who are willing to talk and tell you tell you, um, you know, what's 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 um, what's happening. It sounds like you had a very clear idea. Of, well, the idea was sort of originated with you in house about what you wanted the piece to sort of be about and what yeah. you wanted it to say. I mean, how much were you guiding it and how much was it back and forth between what you wanted oh. and, and what you had in mind and, and the writer and, and how close was that I kind of relationship? I think one of the things you're commissioning to do is the platonic idea of your, the piece in your head will never be the match what, whatever is, is, is delivered. And that's not necessarily a bad thing because it can be... You know, but, you know, you, you think it's going to be this. I thought it was just going to be full of kind of crazy anecdotes about bizarre things that Azeri oligarchs kind of throw their money at. Um, <laughs> But you know, it tended, it tended to actually kind of piece that and picked how Azerbaijan's lobbying efforts worked, how it uses kind of parts of you know, European government that no one really pays much attention to to actually um, push its push its case. And and a piece like this, you really you, know, you have to let a writer who's a very experienced uh, investigation journalist kind of go where go where it 
go where it takes him. I think there's a, there's a limit to what, you know, obviously you can say, when you get drafts back to you, you can say, this doesn't work or this should be mm. moved or we need to kind of, um, but I think you probably, if you try and force a piece too much into whatever your own preconceptions are, as yeah. I think always happens with preconceptions, that probably kind of leaves, leaves the worst. Did you get the first draft and were surprised by it or were you kind of in constant contact about where it was, how it was going and, and were you sort of shaping it as it was heading yeah, along? Yeah, we, we got the first, we got first draft mm. and we had a bit more work on it. But it, 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 once it got, was there, there was a lot, I mean, there was a lot there. He did an extraordinary amount of, of work. So I, you know, there wasn't a lot that needed to be to be, uh, to be kind of doing. And how did you negotiate kind of taking four months of his time out of his... Well, he, I mean, for example, he didn't, he didn't work on it full-time four months. Okay. He was working for The Economist. So that's, I mean, that's you know, uh, we, th- we have this arrangement supposedly that, that you know, Economist people can either do, I think either, either they get um, paid uh, to do pieces for us on their own time or they, or they can carve out some time they would be otherwise working on the, on the paper for them. But yeah, it's a kind of... I mean, everyone's got a job to do on a paper, and that yeah, that takes you know, broadly so that takes priority really. But yeah, he did. Yeah, he, he wasn't working on it on it full time. He was definitely um, he managed to carve out time here and there to get it done. And again, there's you know a lot of people here who are interested in, in writing magazine pitches, wearing your editor's hat when it comes to receiving pitches and stuff like that. What are the, the things you look for, and are then some classic things that that really don't work for someone? I, I think that? a lot of pitches are kind of too brief and blasé. They're like I want to write about this um and i like i like a pitch I like, I like a pitch that really kind of draws you in takes i think one of the things that people that seem to me don't realize are the pitches it's an example to show that you can write uh to someone and this is not to say i want to receive a pitch that's seven thousand words long and you know it's basically the piece itself but i think it's not you know you, you want to you want to draw you want to a pitch like any a magazine article needs to kind of draw you in um uh so i don't think you want to be kind of too offhand um, about it and you want to kind of things can change and things can shift or be completely recast later on down the line but you want to, want to offer some idea of how this is going to work structurally as a story or as an argument if it's a kind of ideas you know ideas piece or or if it's a kind of piece of reporting then you know, you know what, what, what exactly you're hoping to find or do or you've got already thank you so much thanks very much guys. If you have feedback on the podcast, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us at alwaystakenotes.com or you can tweet to us at takenotesalways. This episode of Always Take Notes was produced by Olivia Kralin, Ed Kiernan and Liz Davies. Music was by Jess Danheiser. And we've been your hosts, Simon Aikham and Cassia Sinclair. Thank you so much for joining us and we can't wait to have you back with us next time. Mm-hmm.